from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. On this podcast bonus episode, we're bringing you stories about science and creativity. This time, it's part two of a three-part look at a scientist who is also an enduring pop culture phenomenon, Albert Einstein. Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. That's Michael J. Fox speaking to Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future. Calm down, Marty, I didn't disintegrate anything. You see, Einstein has just become the world's first time traveler. Not Albert Einstein. Einstein's the name of the dog. Anyway, this hour, we're talking about the real Einstein. Exactly 100 years after he gave the world the theory of relativity. A reference to Einstein in a movie about time travel, like Back to the Future, is apt. Because it's Einstein's discovery about the space-time continuum that allows for the possibility, the theoretical possibility, of time travel. James Glick has thought a lot about fantastical movies and stories about traveling to the past or the future because he is the author of the book Time Travel, A History. And he explains in that book how one author was dreaming about time travel years before Einstein was anywhere close to his eureka moment. It's almost... Unbelievable. I assume there are people shaking their heads if I tell them that there was no such thing as time travel before the time machine in 1895. But H.G. Wells was the first, and he wasn't trying to say anything about science. He just wanted to speculate about the future of humanity. But in order to tell his story, he invented this gimmick. Clearly, the time traveler proceeded, any real body must have extension in four directions. There are really four dimensions, three which we call the three planes of space, and a fourth, time. That was ten years before Einstein's first publication of the special theory of relativity. But H.G. Wells was just, he was kidding. It was a plausible idea. He thought he could get away with it. It was probably something he'd heard someplace. Science fiction writers and philosophers and scientists and literary fiction writers all working in parallel and thinking about time, and the influences go in every direction. The idea of time as a fourth dimension, it was around. It was an idea whose time had come. What shall I set the way back for today? For the year 1874. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. To put ourselves into the heads of people living 150 years ago is a challenge. Things were happening, though, to change everybody's conception of time. There are railroads and telegraph wires carrying messages at light speed, and people, for the first time, were starting to think, wow, my grandparents wouldn't recognize this life, and therefore, was the future hold? Wells didn't need to wait for Einstein to make it official. It was sort of there. And Einstein has a kind of time travel, if you want to call it time travel, that's been proven to be real. Physicists will tell you, and it's been proven, that if you travel close to the speed of light or you travel through a, a dense gravitational field, that slows your clock down. So you age more slowly than your identical twin 
back on Earth. There were a lot of thought experiments that involved identical twins. But then the science fiction writers got hold of the idea, too, because why not? Forward pressure sends the machine into the future. Backward pressure into the past. You input your destination time on this keypad. This readout tells you where you're going. This one tells you where you are. This one tells you where you were. We just set it. Turn it on, open the door, and there we are. Or were, really. Okay, the tub is obviously some kind of energy vortex, but instead of being in space, it's, you know, it's in a hot tub. Well, let's, you know, let's be serious here. Time travel isn't actually possible scientifically, at least time travel into the past. Now, I'm sorry if that's going to disappoint people. And there is, you know, the one famous exception where you can slow down your clock by traveling super fast near a black hole. I'm sure everybody remembers Interstellar from just a couple of years ago. And a black hole that big has a huge gravitational pull. The gravity on that planet will slow our clock compared to Earth's drastically. Well, how bad? Well, every hour we spend on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. Well, that's relativity, folks. And it also added the idea of wormholes, which is considerably more speculative. I don't think Einstein dreamed of wormholes, but but today's Einstein followers love wormholes. And I guess the idea is you fly in one end and you fly out the other end. Weird things can happen to your place in the space-time continuum. So they say you want to go from here to there. But it's too far, right? Mm-hmm. So a wormhole bends space like this, so you can take a shortcut through a higher dimension. But except for that, we're stuck with the history we have. You know, since time travel isn't actually possible, I find myself always thinking about what's the story that is really being told here, you know? Think, for example, about Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. The cranky weatherman finds himself trapped in a, in a cycle. He wakes up at 6 a.m. every single day and has to relive the same day over and over again. Morning! Up to see the groundhog? Didn't we do this yesterday? I don't know what you mean. No. Ah! Don't mess with me, Porkchop. What day is this? It's February 2nd. Groundhog Day. So what's that about? Well, gradually, this kind of unpleasant and unhappy guy finds himself doing better and better. That expresses something that I think we all feel. You know, couldn't I do it over? That's one of the great motivators of time travel, regret. Because time is such a big part of our lives. We wonder, what if history had unfolded in a completely different way? You know, what if you changed history? Or what if this event in the future didn't happen? But if it, if it didn't happen, how can it have happened? That's the awkward, abstract way of putting it. The common way of putting it is, what if you go back in time and you shoot your grandfather? And then... You're never born, and so now you don't go back in time, and so you can't shoot your grandfather, and so now you've got a, a Mobius strip. You can't kill us. We're your parents. Without us, you're never born. Says who? Every paradox, in a way, is like the grandfather paradox. You might not recognize it because it keeps popping up in different forms. For a while, I was hoping I could find, you know, a letter from Einstein. My dream was that he'd read The Time Machine and, and said, aha, but of course, that's, it's nothing like that. There's no evidence that I could find that Einstein was a sci-fi buff.
That's the author James Glick. His book, Time Travel, A History, is available now. Also, in the past and the future. The show will resume in no time, but I did want to take this moment to suggest you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to write a review, which does help people discover the show. And now, back to the podcast. I mean, what could be more boring than a character in a novel nowadays entering a room and there's a a blinking high-tech apparatus? That's the novelist John Ray. His time travel book is called The Lost Time Accident. He says we've come a long way since H.G. Wells' time machine and all its whirly gigs. They had fun with that in Back to the Future and that they just made it a sports car. But I just thought it would be more fun to have it just be essentially a cardboard box that you get into and, and just dream in. While he was researching the lost time accidents, Ray learned a lot about Albert Einstein because his novel is about this Eastern European family in the early 1900s who believe that they have discovered the secret to time travel, and they see Einstein as their arch enemy. In the novel, they never mention him by name. Instead, they call him the patent clerk. Yeah, he's the name that must not be spoken. Exactly. Not quite Voldemort, but uh, why did you, was that a comic uh, decision to keep him kind of just over there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. I mean, I was just really fascinated by the idea of a character or or, or a whole group of characters who had the same obsessive quality of fascination with certain scientific problems that great scientists like Einstein have, but who just happen to be completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, I saw a lot of comic potential in that. Yes, um, the book is this multi-generational story about this physicist who is also a pickle maker uh, <laughs> and, and his, his descendants uh, as they make their way through the 20th century. Uh, and it involves time travel as well. Um, yeah, they sort of make their way back and forth and left and right. Right. Which is, am I right thinking, oh, well, that's what every writer of historical fiction feels like. I mean, it's the closest way we can come to time travel. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that... Um Sort of the basic premise of the novel in terms of time travel is that this kind of imaginary time travel that we all engage in, not just writers or or, or creative people, but anyone who ever remembers something vividly or speculates about what might happen next week, can in fact be absolutely concrete and and just as real as any other experience. Right. Um, In terms of how the public has understood him for the last hundred years, how we understand him today, it's not so much... The, the scientists scribbling equations and doing math or the political idealist. It's the, it's the cute old guy with the, the wacky hair uh, on, right. you know, posters on dorm rooms. Sticking uh, his tongue out. Sticking his tongue out. Um, that cute, wise grandpa version uh, uh, shows up in the movie IQ. I don't know if you've seen it, which came out in 1994. Yes, I have seen that garbage barge of a romantic comedy. Um, well, we're going to listen to a little bit of it. Walter Matthau plays Einstein, and he's trying to fix up uh, Meg Ryan and Tim Robbins. What she needs is to go out with someone like you. The problem is, she would never go out with someone like you. That's easy. Just lend me your brain for a couple of days. That is, unfortunately, Walter Matthau as Albert Einstein in the movie IQ. He was this charming guy. That was a real aspect. It absolutely was part of who he was. Uh, He really was an extremely 
modest man. He really, truly had no interest in the trappings of fame or fortune. He truly was an outsider even in Princeton. You know, he spent most of his time alone. And he actually, he truly had a remarkable sense of humor about himself as well as as, uh, the society that he was in. I think another reason that Einstein has become such a popular and enduring icon is that when he began to publish his theories, um, and even to this day, a lot of people are, are a little bit frightened by science. And the implications of science seem to be very cold and forbidding, and they seem to be negating uh, a lot of uh, the things that people hold dear, their spirituality and their religion. Right. And here comes Einstein, who's so warm and generous and modest and almost saint-like in a yes. certain way. And, and before the phrase spiritual but not religious existed, he was that. Exactly, exactly. And so... He also, in his person and in his persona, served as a, as, as a figure who might unify science and spirituality. Unfortunately, he died before Back to the Future, so he didn't get to see Doc Brown. The Doc <laughs> Brown uh, version of Albert Einstein, which right. clearly is a, is a character somehow descended from that trope. Let's Absolutely. Listen, let's listen to a little bit of that movie. This sucker's electrical, but I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 oh, gigawatts! <laughs> That is Christopher Lloyd uh, as the Goy Einstein, I guess, and Michael J. Fox <laughs> in Back to the Future. Um, so before Albert Einstein, was that uh, caricature of the scientist afoot or, or did he sort of – did it begin with him? Well, really, the only direct connection between the mad scientist in Back to the Future and Albert Einstein is the crazy shock of Snow White hair. We get it immediately. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's true. That's true. You know, we immediately think Einstein. He, I think unintentionally, but very effectively created a kind of persona that could be reduced to the simplest caricature of just a, a few drawn lines. Yeah. Which is a kind of modern phenomenon. I mean, I, I yes. suppose that happened in the 18th century, no, but it no. seems like a 20th century thing. Absolutely. And what I was about to say is that Einstein's scientific career evolved almost in parallel with uh, various forms of modern media, with, uh, you know, the newsreel and, the, right. and, and radio and then later film. And he was very well suited to these forms of media yeah. because you couldn't possibly reduce his theories to a soundbite, but you could certainly reduce his persona to a a tidy little caricature. And that, I think, caused him to be very effectively transmitted worldwide as this kind of concept. Right. But but even as he had become this global superstar synonym for genius uh, in the 20th century, he'd also become slightly marginal in physics. Is that because he didn't accept quantum theory? The very sort of willingness on Einstein's part to tilt at windmills and risk the disapproval and and sort of incredulity of his colleagues in the last third of his life became this truly quixotic quest to disprove various innovations and discoveries and theories that had directly sprung from relativity. Einstein was completely alone in his resistance to the implications of his own earlier work. So he was once again an outsider as he had been as a young man. 
Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In fact, it's very symmetrical if you think of it in a certain way. He began as a complete outsider who was not taken seriously. Suddenly he became the absolute, utter, total insider in, in the sense that his ideas and work could not have been more central to every aspect of physics. And they changed every aspect of physics. And then after that relatively brief period of a decade or two, he moved farther and farther out of relevance, essentially. Yeah. And he ended up in a very similar position to that yeah. in which he began, that yeah. of, of total outsider. Yeah. Well, John Ray, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kurt. It was wonderful to be here. John Ray's novel is called The Lost Time Accidents. And that's it for part two of our Einstein miniseries. Our whole science and creativity coverage has been produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. We finish up with Albert Einstein next time when one of his most far-fetched predictions comes true exactly 100 years later. When they announced the discovery, the whole world stopped. And we're talking for a second about being under the same sky. Gravitational waves. Way to go, Einstein. That's next time on Studio 360's Science and Creativity series. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 